0: We're gonna have Malachi again. I had the privilege of preaching through Malachi Sunday mornings when our senior pastor was out, and so I finished up and thought, "I'll go ahead and finish up with you all." The book of Malachi here at the end of this this book, which is I find to be a very fascinating prophecy. This book closes with a summary of the the two central themes. Of the prophecy as a whole. Two themes. Number one, the, th- the people have rejected God's law, rejected it. They're not obeying the law that God had given to them through Moses many years before. The second theme is the people are not rightly anticipating the coming day of the Lord. And those two themes come together in this. You're rejecting God's law, and on the coming day of the Lord, it's not going to be good for you. This is a bad thing. Law of Moses, the coming day of the Lord by this messenger named Elijah, these are two massive themes in the book of Malachi. Am I kind of loud? Am I okay? Okay, it sounds, I just don't want to hurt your ears, because I can can get into this. I like the Bible very much, and so I don't want to hurt your eardrums. Just about every section of this book, God exposes the people's disobedience to the law. And then he warns them of what will happen if they persist in unrepentance of their sin. He will come in judgment. And so it makes sense that the book closes the way it does. Remember the law of Moses. Look at chapter chapter 4, verse 4, and let me read our text for us. Remember the law of my servant Moses... Statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, this is not an easy passage to apply to us, the church, living in the age after Jesus has already come. How do we apply these two commandments that are given in this passage to remember the law of Moses and to behold or look forward to the coming day of Elijah? Because if you, under, if you understand Scripture, you know that the law of Moses was given in a different time period, and as we already read one passage this morning from 2 Corinthians, that law has come to an end for those of us who are in Christ. And moreover, this coming of Elijah, as we'll see in a little bit, that's fulfilled in the, the prophet John the Baptist, who already came. So how are you supposed to look forward to him? You See how this makes it difficult for us. It made sense for them, but how do we apply this to us? So, what I want to do for simplicity's sake is just to ask of each point, each commandment here, remember the law, look forward to the coming of Elijah, I want to ask two simple questions. What did it mean for them, and what does it mean for us? Kind of serve as our structure for this time this morning, and I want to pay special attention to these key Old Testament figures that are mentioned in this passage. Moses and Elijah, and we'll see how they, those two key figures of the Old Testament find their apex in Jesus Christ himself. So let's begin with command number one, remember the law of Moses. Now just so you know, we're going to spend most of the time in our, our time here this morning in, with this verse. verse, verse four, chapter four, verse, verse four, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So first let's ask, what did this command mean for the people of Israel to whom Malachi is writing. It's a command to remember. Not merely recall something that you might have forgotten. The idea here is remember what was given and act accordingly. It's really a command to obey. Obey the law of Moses, because this has been the main problem of this book. Malachi is addressing to the people. Forgot the law. They're not obeying it. They were disobeying the law, or at the very least, they were obeying it very half-heartedly. Not putting their full hearts into it, just doing the bare minimum and hoping God would be okay with that. Law of Moses. This is a reference to the law that God gave to his people Israel through Moses after they had exited Egypt and arrived at Mount Sinai, and that title there, Horeb. Commanded him at Horeb. That's just another name for this mountain called Sinai. God gave people, the people of Israel, this law. And through Malachi, God is saying to this current generation of Israelites, many years after this law was given, you've forgotten it. You're not obeying it. What are you doing? Now, what were some of the specific laws that they were disobeying? I want to give you just a quick overview of, of this from the, from the book of Malachi. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6, see some of the laws that they were disobeying. first one had to do with animal sacrifices. Chapter 1, verse 6, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. You say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says The Lord of hosts, what's going on here? The people of Israel were commanded in the law that was given them through Moses to bring the purest animals to be sacrificed for their sins. This is what they depended upon to be right with the Lord. They sinned. They deserved to die. And so God graciously set up this system in that time period for animals to be sacrificed in their place so they wouldn't have to. What does this say about their view of God? Think very highly of him, right? What does this say about their view of their own sin? Oh, this is good enough. My sin's not that bad, so this lame goat will do. It's a big problem, this half-hearted worship, that they were disobeying the law of the Lord regarding these animal sacrifices. They also disobeyed the law pertaining to marriage. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. What are they doing? They are marrying people outside of the covenant people of God. In other words, there were those within God's people who were joining in, in that covenant of marriage with people who worship false gods. It's a big problem. It still happens in our day where we might, for whatever reason, emotional reasons, craving for companionship and love, we may settle as Christians and marry a non-Christian and seek to excuse it in whatever way we can. They were doing something similar here in marrying the daughter of a foreign God but it even got worse look at verse 13 of chapter 2 and this second thing you do you cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand you say why does he not because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant So what else are they doing? They're divorcing those with whom they were married in the covenant. They were divorcing their spouses. They were disobeying the law of Moses as it pertains to marriage in two ways. Marrying those outside of the people of God, and even those whom they were married to within the people of God, they were divorcing. This is clearly contrary to God's will, according to the law of Moses. One more example, the law pertaining to giving. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. So there was laws that were given to them that told them, what it looked like to give back to God from what they've been given. And they're holding back. They're being stingy. They're not giving all that God required. So God is saying, look, people of Israel, if you want to be spared of the coming judgment, you need to be repenting of your sin and obeying the law that was given to you through Moses. Now Moses here in chapter 4, verse 4, is viewed in in this passage and also just in the old testament as a whole as this ideal law giver he was a prominent figure in the old testament in the storyline of scripture and he was the the key figure of what of what it was like to give the law so when we think of moses we think of the law that was given through him he is the law giver and so this command in chapter 4, verse 4, is pretty straightforward for the people in Malachi's day. God gave you this law through Moses. It still applies today, so obey it. Obey the law. Repent of your sins for not obeying the law and continue to obey. But it's not that straightforward for us. So let's ask this question. What does it mean for us, we who are in the church, in this time period after Jesus has already come, called the Age of the New Covenant, where God made new promises to his people, what does it mean for us to remember and obey the law of Moses? There's at least two answers to that question. Many more that could be given. For the sake of time, we'll stick with two. Number one, we remember the law of Moses by reflecting upon what it reveals about us. We remember The law of Moses by remembering what does it say about me? The law of Moses is a reminder to every single one of us of how sinful we actually are. It reveals our inability to obey God in and of ourselves. It shows how sinful we really are and how badly we need someone to come and obey for us and rescue us from our sinful disobedience to the law. Here's how Romans chapter 7 puts it. Don't turn there. I'm going to be reading several passages of Scripture, um, and we won't turn there for the sake of time. Romans 7 puts it like this. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. This is Paul talking. What is he saying? The law of Moses reveals how much of a sinner I actually am. I didn't realize it was sinful to covet. I do that all the time. I want things that are not mine all the time. And it says, I covet. Oh, man, that's bad. I'm not in a good position now. It reveals our desperate state before a holy God. It shows us, look, we can't measure up. We cannot be good enough, and there it expose, therefore exposes our desperate need for someone else to stand in our place and obey the law for us. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. He says, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The law shows us our need for someone else to stand in our place. And it was our guardian. It was our schoolmaster. It, it got us to the place where Jesus comes and we see, oh, we need him. We need him. The law of Moses leads us to see our need for Jesus so that we could be justified, as it says in Galatians 3, which means to be declared righteous. God, as the judge, declares us right standing before him. Why? Because we place our faith in Jesus not right standing before him because of our obedience to the law. (laughs) It's not going to happen. The law reveals our inability to obey God and shows us our desperate need for Jesus to stand in our place. I hope you understand this. It's very important. Some people think that what Jesus came to do for us was to live a good example for us to follow. I hear that all the time. Why did Jesus live the perfect life? Well, just so we could see what it looks like on how we're supposed to live. That's partly true. But what they tend to mean by that is and try to be like that. Problem is, we can't. It's not going to happen. It's not good news if Jesus merely came to live a perfect life to be our example. That's really bad news because we can't measure up. We'll never be able to measure up. So why did he live a perfect life? was our substitute. We needed someone to stand in our place and obey the law perfectly for us because we can't. And the law shows us our need for that. But it also shows us what we deserve. The law shows us we deserve to die. We deserve to be punished for our sin. Paul also says in Galatians chapter 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, meaning... Jesus took the curse upon himself that we deserve for our disobedience to the law. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a for us when he died on the cross. So I, I would appeal to any of you here, if you are trying to trust in your own good works to be accepted before a holy God and go to heaven, wake up. It's not going to happen. You will never gain right standing before God. You will never be accepted by God on the basis of your own good works. Let's just say that you, and the very end, let's just say that your good works do outweigh your bad works. This is how a lot of people view how, they, how you get to heaven. Let's just say that happens. It's not true, but let's just say that it's possible that your good works will, on, on the last day, outweigh your bad works. Well, what about these bad works? You still did bad things. It's not like they just go away. You think of someone who does a lot of good in one day, walks an elderly across the street, you know, um, speaks an encouraging word to someone, opens the door for someone. That's three good works. But they also stole some bubble gum from the store. And they plead before the judge. (laughs) I did three good things. Can you just overlook that that?" Event earlier, it's not going to happen. Any just judge is going to condemn him, rightly, for that one bad deed. And that's how God is with us. He can't overlook our sin just because we do some good things. God must judge all all sin. And the good news is Jesus came to take the judgment for us. That's what the law helps us to see. It helps us to see we can't be good enough. Jesus was good enough, so our responsibility is to trust him, to turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus alone. Now, after we do that, when we trust in Jesus and what he accomplished for us in his perfect life in our place and the the punishment he took for us when he died on the cross, when we say, I'm banking on that to be in right standing before God, okay, we're Christians, how does the law of Moses now apply to us? Do we just try to do what it says and everything that it says exactly how it says it? And this leads us to the second way in which we can apply the law of Moses to ourselves, and it's this. We need to remember how the law has been fulfilled. It's just not that straightforward for us to read a passage like Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. And conclude, well, I guess we as Christians just do everything that is said in the law of Moses. Let me see if I can show you. It's just not that simple. Romans chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says to the church in Rome, You are not under the law, but under grace. What do we do with that? Not under the law. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20, Paul is speaking to Jews, speaking to people about reaching Jews with the gospel, and he says this, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, then he puts in parenthesis, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. We read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning and talked about how the law of Moses is coming to an end with the coming of Christ. And Romans chapter 10 verse 4 says something similar. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, what does it mean that we are no longer under the law of Moses? And what does it mean that the law of Moses has come to an end? I mean, it's not that easy to answer. I wonder if, for those of you who have ever wondered this, you're reading through the Old Testament, you read through all these laws and commandments and see some of them that are just like, what? Am I supposed to do this? Like, am I not allowed to eat pork? I love bacon. This is a problem. Oh, yeah, that would be a problem. I love bacon, too. So what do we do with this? Now, there are some who have tried to make the argument that the law of Moses can be broken down into three main categories. You have the moral aspects of the law, the civil aspects of the law, and the ceremonial aspects of the law. The moral parts of the law pertain to those commandments that are moral in nature, summarized in the Ten Commandments. Don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. The civil parts of the law pertain to the nation of Israel as a geopolitical nation, like laws pertaining to commerce and property and livestock. And then you have the ceremonial law that has laws pertaining to like food regulations, don't eat pork or... uh, things that are clean and unclean. Don't touch a dead body. Those kinds of laws. And then even as we saw here in Malachi, laws of animal sacrifices. And so the argument goes, you know, when Paul and the other New Testament writers speak of the end of the law and how we're no longer under the law, what he really means by that is not the moral law, but the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law. We're not under those parts, but the moral law continues, it sounds good, it sounds like a simple solution, but there's one massive problem. The Bible just doesn't talk about the law in that way. It just doesn't break up the law so nice and neatly so that they fit into these little categories and we only obey some of them. This would have been a foreign construct placed upon the law of Moses that the, the, the average Israelite would have said, what are you talking about? I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. The law is not broken up like that. It's all moral. We're to obey all of it. And so when Paul says, and other New Testament writers say, we're no longer under the law, he means the whole thing. He means even the Ten Commandments. Uncomfortable silence. What do we do with that? Am I saying now, Paul saying, that you're allowed to go and steal? You're allowed to lie? If we're no longer under that law anymore, hey, we're free to do whatever we want because we're under grace. If you read the New Testament, you know that that's not true. So what do we do with this? How is it possible that these sins are, they're not okay? We can't do them. How is that possible if we're no longer under these kinds of laws, the law as a whole? Here's the New Testament. Here's what the New Testament teaches. Though we as Christians are no longer under the law of Moses, that doesn't mean we're not under a law. There's a new law that we're now under, and it's called the law of Christ. We see that again and again in the New Testament. The law of Moses has been fulfilled in the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9:21. When Paul says he, he's now under the law of Christ, What is this? What's the law of Christ? What is this law that we're to obey as Christians? What is the law that we're to remember? Romans chapter 13 puts it like this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. Romans thirteen eight to 10 Galatians 6-2 puts it like this. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the law that we are now under. It's the law of love, and that was really the heart of the law of Moses. We know it's not just love of neighbor that fulfills the law. It's also love of God. As Jesus says, the two greatest commandments, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this in Matthew 22, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, at the heart of all the commandments that were ever given in the Old Testament is this, love God Love neighbor. This is the law of Christ, and this is the law that we are now under as New Covenant believers. And so when we read Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, we ask, how does this apply to us? What do we need to remember? We need to remember the law to love God and love each other. And listen, what happens when we do that? When we are living by that law, what happens? We're going to live in such a way that God has called us to live. This is a summary of all of our problems and our disobedience to God. We don't love him like we should. We don't love each other like we should. Now The implications of this are just massive. Like, where do we start in applying this to ourselves? Love God and love each other. (laughs) That's life. That's everything. Let me give one small example that I think some of you uh, younger parents can relate to try to think of the the most recent problem that you had. This applies to all of us. I'll give an example related to younger parents. Try to think of the most recent problem you had. It could have been a relational conflict. It could have been a problem at work, whatever it was. Now, I want you to think about how you responded. Think of the problem. Think of how you responded. If your response was at all sinful, meaning... You disobeyed a certain command of God in the New Testament. Maybe you got angry, maybe you got anxious, maybe you were jealous, unkind, maybe you assumed the worst in someone else rather than giving you the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you threw yourself a nice little pity party. They became passive, withdrew, maybe you got defensive. If you responded in a sinful way, listen, the problem was not that you were not loving. You were indeed loving, but who are you loving? Yourself. That's at the heart of all sin. The DNA of sin is self-love. Love was indeed ruling our hearts, but it was love for self, not God and others. And this is at the bottom of all our disobedience to God, a love for self more than God and others. I think of so many times it happens, maybe on a daily basis, when I'm trying to have a a conversation with my wife, an adult conversation that's uninterrupted, it's very difficult with four young children who love to talk. I tell you what, they love to talk, and they love to talk to their parents. And I'm I'm trying to talk to my wife, and I hear, Dad, 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 Dad. times infinity what it feels like. And finally, I'm like, what? 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 What What do you want? And then they give some little little response that I thought was just, really, was that important? Is that, you really need to interrupt it for that? It's very common. And yet I feel so justified in my anger. I mean, goodness gracious, how dare you think to interrupt me when I'm trying to talk? Isn't that what I'm thinking? Living for self. I'm, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm right to be angry at you right now. Clearly, my anger was not arising out of a love for my son or daughter. It was arising out of a love for self. You inconvenienced me. I deserve the respect for you to keep silent and for me to keep talking. (laughs) Isn't that what we're saying? I'm entitled to it. I'm entitled to convenience. Now, you might say, but wait a while. Children shouldn't rudely interrupt their parents, and that's true. That's true. But responses like the one I tend to have do not reveal a heart that is concerned for the good of my child. They reveal a heart that is concerned for the good of myself. Remember the law of Moses. How? By remembering the law of Christ. Love God. Love others. The passage continues. There's another command here, and we'll try to work through this briefly. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this is a command to look forward to the coming of Elijah. Now, how were they to obey this? Now, we know that they were to obey this by really actually looking forward. There was a figure that they were anticipating who would come and prepare the way of the Lord, and this person was called Elijah. Some of them thought it was the actual re- Elijah that will be uh, incarnate again. And we know this, this Elijah had some sort of message, message that he was going to give to the people. Because if you look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So you have this messenger who's going to come, and without a doubt, it's referring to the same person in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, this Elijah prophet who, who's going to prepare the way of God himself, and the way he's going to prepare the way of God himself is by speaking this message, this message. And what was the message? It seemed to be some sort of message of repentance, because if you look at the language of chapter 4, verse 6, he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. That language of turn is really the word for repentance. So he's preaching a message of repentance, saying, you better repent, the Lord is coming. Now we know whom this Elijah figure is. We know that he is, uh, the fulfillment of this is John the Baptist. When John the Baptist arrives on the scene, just before Jesus shows up in his public ministry, he is preparing the way of Jesus and he's calling people to repent of their sins. And so how do they obey this? They need, to, they need to be reminded, this Elijah figure is going to come, and he's going to warn us. We need to heed the warning to repent. What does this have to do with us? I mean, John the Baptist already came. So what, what does that mean for us? It doesn't mean too much different. We know that what, what our responsibility is as well is to heed the warning of repentance also. We know that John the Baptist has already come. Elijah has already come in the person of John the Baptist, but the principle remains the same. If you're a non-Christian here, if you've not trusted in Jesus, repented of your sins, you need to heed the warning that John the Baptist already gave. Repent of your sins, or Jesus, the judge, will rightly judge you for your sins. Good news for you is that the judgment has been delayed. What was not anticipated by the Old Testament people was that the coming day of the Lord will be broken up into two parts. And Jesus is going to come again and he will judge all those who remain unrepentant. So the the warning is the same for us to repent of our sins. And even for we who are Christians, we continue to repent of our sins. Now, I want to ask this question as we close. Why would God mention these two themes? More specifically, these two figures at the end of Malachi Moses and Elijah. We know, certainly, they haven't been obeying the law, so he wants them to obey the law. They have been rightly anticipating the coming day of Elijah. They need to to do that. But why does he bring them up? What's, What's significant about this? What's the real issue? If you understand the book of Malachi, the, their problem is that they don't see God for who he is. The reason why they're disobeying the law is because they're not standing in awe of who God is. If they were, they'd be obeying. These two themes are yet more reminders to the people that they're not seeing God for who he is. God is great, God is glorious. And when we see him for who he is, our hearts change and we obey. Why Moses and Elijah? Think of the next time in scripture that those two figures come together. We read it. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah show up. Jesus is transformed so that a few of his disciples get to see how glorious he actually is and who shows up. What are Moses and Elijah doing there? What does that tell us? Here's how one person put it. When God determined to show the significance of Jesus' ministry, he had these two men appear on a mountain with our Savior in the transfiguration. Moses represented the law, Elijah represented the prophets. Their appearance in Christ's time indicated that Jesus was the apex of their messages, fulfilling and transcending them both as demonstrated by his resplendent radiance. He, Jesus, is the one whom the law and the prophets ultimately anticipated. It's all about him. It is all about Jesus. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, were pointers to Jesus. They were urging the people to obey God, but the reason why they didn't was because they weren't beholding the glory of God, which was the exact problem of the people in Malachi's day, and it's our problem too. So often, it is our problem too. For us to do what God says, obey the law, obey what he's commanded us, we've got to see. We have to behold Jesus in all his glory. This is is what life is all about, really. It's forgetting ourselves and being caught up in the glory of who Jesus is. And when we do that, we're being freed from the bondage of self-glory, bondage of self-focus and self-gain and self-love and self-protection, self-reliance. We're being caught up in the glory of gaining Christ, focusing on him, loving him, experiencing his protection for us, relying upon him. We've got, we've got to see Jesus as glorious. and When we behold the glory of the Lord, as it said in the passage we read earlier, we will be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Behold Jesus. How do we do that now? You look to him in his word. See him there. This is why so often one of the first things I tell new Christians is read the Gospel of John. You're going to see Jesus there. You need to see Jesus there because the way you grow in Christ, know Christ, is to see and behold Jesus for who he is. And as we see him for who he is, we're changed into his likeness. You want to obey God? You need to love Christ. We need to realize that the way that God changes us is not primarily by changing our bad habits into good habits. That's not the way he changes us. The primary way God changes us to the Holy Spirit is by changing our desires so that we behold the glory of Jesus and we love Jesus so much that our bad habits, our sinful habits become distasteful and disgusting to us in light of what we get in Christ. Remember the law of Moses. Look forward to the day of the Lord. Behold the glory of the Son. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. And we thank you for the fulfillment of your, your Old Testament word in Christ. We thank you that everything is pointing to Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts to see. Remove those distractions from our lives, even little things that cause us not to see Jesus for who he is. Distract us, even mundane things, trivial things. Lord, would you so work in our hearts to cause us to see Christ for who he is and and, and see the greatness of his glory so that our sin is disgusting, our sin is distasteful, because we love Christ so much. Let us behold him, and as we do, would you transform us one degree of glory to another. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.